Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we believe that you are worthy, that, that, that you alone are worthy of praise and honor and glory. God, we believe that you hold us together, that you sustain us, that you give us every breath and you allow our hearts to continue beating. God, we believe you, in, you control and hold the entire universe together. We believe you made it and you control it and you sustain it. God, we believe that we need you. God, we also believe that you're good. And I'm praying that as we meet here today and continue to worship, God, I'm praying you would do a work in our hearts. Would, I'm praying that you're, you would use your strength that you use to sustain the universe. God, would, would you use that in our midst that we would hear from you, that you would work in our hearts? God, I'm praying you'd be strong enough to stir our hearts through the word. I pray your spirit would be present. God, I'm asking that you would help me to teach. God, we, we want to be moved by you. We want to hear from you. We want to honor you with our lives. So I pray you would do that today. You would work in our midst, God. And I, I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue in the book of James. Uh, James has been a very challenging book for us. So if you can open up to James chapter 4, that's where we're going to be uh, at uh, today. But it, James has been uh, very pointed and very direct, if you've been here at all, part of, the, part of this season at all. I mean, he's been dropping elbows on us left and right, over and over and over again. He's been basically being very point blank with this church that's been scattered for persecution, but he's calling them out on all the things they have issues with. At the beginning of James chapter 1, he started by calling them out on being double-minded. They were waffling back and forth on whether or not they were going to be following God or not. And then he, he called them out for being people who listened to the word but never actually did the word. They, they liked to hear it, but they didn't like to actually obey it. And then, then he got on to them for not loving and caring about the needy and the poor. And he said, you're not even just not loving the needy and the poor. You're showing favoritism to the rich. And they talked to him about the way they use their tongues. And they talked about how they're fighting. I mean, listen, he's dropped elbow after elbow after elbow on this church. And, and as I sat there and started thinking about that this week as I was getting ready, I, I know I've shared this with you before, but, but here's the best illustration of what this would have been like for this church to hear. See, we're spreading this out over like 14, 15 weeks in the book of James. When this letter showed up to their city and to their church, they all got together in their home and they read the letter out loud together in one sitting. So I, I need you to imagine it like this. Say you're with your small group and all of a sudden you find out that I wrote a letter to the entire church, but I want it read at small groups. So you're all gathered at your house, you're, you've eaten dinner, and now you're opening up this church-wide email or letter from me, and I'm saying things like this. You guys, you're not obeying the word. You just listen to it, but you never do anything about it. And, and it doesn't seem like you care about the poor at all. Actually, I'm hearing that in your groups, you're really nice to rich people, and you ignore the poor people. And, and the way you guys are talking to each other, totally unacceptable. And you're fighting. I mean, you're just constantly fighting. You're so selfish and self-centered. You know what it's like you're doing? It's like you're cheating on God. You live like you're enemies of God. I want you to imagine how that church-wide email or letter would feel as you and your group were reading that thing out loud together. I think it would, you would feel probably, um, I don't know, would you feel angry? Would you feel accused? Would you feel broken? Would you feel frustrated? It's like, I'm done with this James guy. All he does is say mean things to me. Would you even consider that it might be true? Or would you say, listen, let's go find a pastor that's nicer to us. I don't, I don't know how you would respond 
But here's how I know what I know we all would need. What we would need is what's coming up in the next verses. This is the first moment, I think, in the book that James gives some really good news. Now, he's not done saying tough things, but he's giving them a breather so they know the good news and how to respond in light of the good news. I mean, when you hear bad news after bad news after bad news, when you hear thing after thing after thing that you feel like you're getting wrong, it seems clear that you're getting it wrong, it seems obvious that your group is missing it. When you see that, there, there's a moment, if you're being honest, if you're, you're hearing all these things you need to repent of, you're hearing all these sins, you're hearing all this brokenness, there's a moment that you need some good news. And that's where we're picking up in James chapter 4, verse 6. Let's look at where he says here. The very first part of verse 6, right after he just said they were adulteresses, that they're cheating on God, right after he just said they're living as enemies of God, he says this in verse 6, but, it's a huge word there, even though you're enemies, even though you've been cheating on God, but he gives more grace. I'm going to repeat that. He, he's saying this to this church that is failing over and over and over again, that is co- consistently disobeying God. They're cheating on him and living like enemies of God. And the thing that James says after the biggest hit in the entire book is, but God gives more grace. I, listen, I, when I read this book, I'm convinced that I need more grace. That, that's one of the things that should be happening in you. What should not be happening in you is that you need more effort. What should not be happening is you need more self-sufficiency or more strength. What should be happening in us is that we need more grace. Let me tell you why we need more grace. There's a couple things that were standing out to me. There's two reasons I'm going to share with you that we need more grace. Number one, reason number one, we need more grace because God's expectations are so high. Listen, he's got these expectations that are holy and perfect and pure, and he is uncompromising. You need to hear that. He is uncompromising on his good and holy standards. They are the right standards. But I need grace because those standards are a million miles beyond me. I don't have the ability to do it. We need more grace because God's standard is so high. But, but I need more grace for another reason. It's not just that his standard is too high and my makeup is too weak. I, I need more grace because I have a really sinful heart with sinful desires. The, the problem isn't just that the standard is beyond me. The problem is there's this brokenness in my heart that goes deep, like all the way to the core of whom I am. It's, it's that this sinful desire that doesn't want to obey and follow God. It doesn't want to do what's right. I, I think what I need is not just grace to live up to his standards. I need grace to deal with all my failures, and I've got tons of them. Listen, church, when he says that you need more grace, he's giving us really, really good news. Every single one of us. No matter how long we've been following Jesus, no matter how many sermons you've heard or how new you are at this, every single one of us need more grace. I want more grace. When I read that, it says, but he gives more grace. All I'm thinking in my head is, yes, I want that. I want it and I need it. How do I get more grace? That's what's going on in my head. I don't know if that's what's going on in your head, but I hope that's what's going on in your head right now. I want more grace, so how do I get it? 
And uh, let me read this one verse to you because I, I, this verse stood out to me this week as I was thinking about how awesome God's grace is. That, that his grace is sufficient to help me meet these expectations. His grace is stronger than my sinful heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. I want you to hear this verse because this is the grace that I want. When I say he gives more grace and I want it, I want you to see the grace that I want. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. It says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. He's, he's able to make it all over, overflow to you is what it's saying there. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Did you see that right there? He's able to make grace overflow to you so that you can be sufficient at everything all the time. That's ridiculous awesome. Like, I, like when I think about God's high standard, what he just said his grace does it, is it makes me able. His grace makes me able to actually live up to the standard all the time, every time. Dude, I want that. Give me more of that. And it says this, in all things at all times, that you may abound. His grace overflows so that I can overflow in good works. I love this because the source of my good works, the source of my sufficiency is not in me, it's in him. And his grace and his sufficiency, he overflows in grace to me to change me and make me live a totally different life. He changes my heart and who I am and how I live. So I'm coming back to that question I asked a minute ago. How do I get this grace? I want more of it. I mean, I, I know I don't just need a little bit of grace. I need overflowing grace. So how do I get overflowing grace? That's my question that I think James chapter 4, verse 6 raises for me. If he gives more grace, well, how do I get it? Back to James chapter 4, verse 6. Look at the second half of the verse. It says this. This is James. He's quoting James in chapter 3. He says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says, God gives more grace. God gives more grace. He's going to remind you of the verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. He says, God resists or opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. To the humble. One of the rare times I feel like I actually did a formula in the Bible. The formula is simply this. If you're proud and self-sufficient, if you can do it on your own, if you're like, God, I've got this. If you do it on your own and in your own strength, he will resist you. You will not have more grace. You will have less grace. But, but if you're humble, we'll unpack what that means. It's, it's the humble that he gives grace to, but the proud that he resists. Now just think about what he's saying there for a moment. He's saying that if you decide you're gonna do it on your own, he's saying, listen, it won't work. Your self-sufficiency won't get it. Pure stubborn self-will and determination won't get you and I more grace. Better plans, better strategies, Better accountability. You, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you can do, none of that will get you more grace. There is one thing. There's one key to unlocking the overflowing, abounding grace of God. Humility. Humility. I just, it's so backwards from what I think. I think, you know what, God helps those who help themselves. Can we be honest about that? That sometimes our approach to him is, listen, if you want more grace, you better, get to, you better give him more work. You want more money, you better give him more giving. 
you want more of whatever he's got, you need to give him more of whatever you've got. That he would give me more grace if I worked harder, if I read my Bible more, if I prayed more, if I showed up at church more, if I served at church more, if I gave more. Whatever it is, if I filled in the blank, if I will witness more or pray more or obey more, then I will get more grace. That is the opposite of the gospel formula that God gives us. Grace is to humility, not effort. You may be confused right now, but let me explain what this humility looks like, because I think James is going to unpack that for us. Look, look at how he unpacks what this looks like. Look at uh, James chapter 4, verse 7. He says this. First part says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Let me just hit pause. So he's saying, listen, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit to God. Submit is the same idea of humility there. He's saying what's happening is what it means to be humble to God is that you would submit to him. My submission to God is doing this. It's not saying, God, I've got this. It's saying, you know what, God, you're in charge. I'm submitting to you. You, you get to rule. You get to reign. You get to decide. Like, I don't get to decide. I don't get to be in charge. You do. And what it looks like for me to be humble to God is for me to submit to him and say, you get to tell me what to do about everything all the time. I'm not just saying, hey, I like you and I see you on Sunday. I'm saying, no, I, I revere you and I honor you and I submit to you as my king and my Lord, and my Master, you are always in charge, and I'm always taking orders, and you're always sitting on the throne, and no one else and nothing else is sitting on the throne ever. Humility to God is actually submission to God. It's bowing to Him as your King and ruler and sovereign. It's, it's humility. It's that type of humility. It's giving God my yes to everything that gets me grace. No matter what he asks, no matter when he asks it, he gets a yes from me. He says go, I say yes, sir. He says stop, I say yes, sir. He says give, I say yes, sir. It, that's the humility that gets us grace from God. So James sees this thing, says he gives more grace. But what it takes for you to get more grace is this moment where you're saying, listen, I'm going to humbly submit to him. I submit to God. That's what humility looks like. I submit to him as my king. You want more grace, submit. You may not like that. I don't know what things God has been saying to you that you feel stubborn about. It can be anything. It can be the way you do your marriage or the way you work your job or the way you're raising your kids or the way you grumble or the way... You you are so, well, I don't know what it is. I got a million things I feel like God's always working on my heart on. I, I don't want to tell you what it is, but is there this yes that you've given to God saying, listen, you're in charge, you're in control, I do what you want. Now, not that you do it perfectly, but that the bent of your heart is that he would be your king and ruler. That, that's what submitting to God is. And if you want more grace, there's this moment that you have to do where you say, God, you are in charge. Now, I'm about to do something very Baptist here. <laughs> this Baptist thing is all about to alliterate. I don't know if y'all like, y'all like alliteration? All right, good, I'm about to get my alliteration game on because here's what's going on. I couldn't help it. I stumbled into it. I'm not gonna lie to you, but I've got three R's. That's right, three R's. I am so Baptist right now. This is one of my first times alliterating ever. 
I've got three R's about what submission looks like, about the fruit that submission produces in your life. And these three R's are right here in James chapter 4. Say, when you submit, when you've said that God, you're in charge and God, you rule, when you've said that, it, it does something in you and it gives you more grace. It opens up the floodgates of God's grace. He's there willing to give grace and I'm going to give you grace, I'm going to flood it to you, but if you decide you're not going to submit to him, you're not going to humble yourself, you're going to do it your way in your power, the way you like it, then he will actively resist you. And if you want more grace, here's the three R's. Oh my goodness, I'm going to get sick of saying that. Here's the three R's of what submission to God looks like. Number one, submission to God will resist Satan. See the R there? I don't know if you got that. Okay, good. Yes, I, listen, okay, we're going to amen for alliteration. I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that to get an amen. Y'all got to help me preach this. Submission to God will resist Satan. Look what 4-7-B says. I said B. I, I'm, I don't know why I did it. The second half of chapter, or verse 7 says, it says, submit therefore to God. And look what he says. Resist the devil. One of the things that happens when you submit to God is you're saying, God, you're in charge. You get to decide, to decide everything about my life. The opposite of that is true, that there is someone else that has an agenda for your life. There's someone else who wants to rule your life and tell you what to do, and it's the devil. So when you submit to God and do what he wants, what what is automatically included in that is saying no to everyone else's plan for your life. If the devil has a plan, you're resisting that, saying no, you aren't in charge, he's in charge. If sin is calling you and pulling you and there's these these desires in your heart that want to rule you and reign you and be over you and motivate you, they're the things that stir you and motivate you for all your actions. If it's sin that's going on in your heart, to submit to God is to say no to that sin and to say yes to him. It's saying no to yourself. You're looking at yourself saying, no, I don't get to rule. I don't get to decide. He does. He's in charge. Submitting to God looks like resisting the devil. It says no to all of those plans and all of those temptations and all of those things that seem so appealing, but they're really there to destroy you. I, I saw this video on TikTok, not TikTok, Twitter, Twitter. I don't know TikTok. One of those, one of those cool social media sites. I saw this video uh, of a, a sand serpent, a viper. It was a viper. And it just it's sitting on top of the sand and it it buried itself waiting to ambush something. It, you saw it kind of just shaking, and it just sunk down in the sand, and, it, dude, it totally disappeared. It was freaky to me to sit there and think I could be walking in the desert. I don't know why I'd be walking in the desert, but just go with me on that one. I'm walking in the desert just minding my own business, and the sand looks perfectly normal, and there's a viper underneath there, extremely poisonous, just waiting to ambush me. Listen, the devil has a plan for you that's hidden and masked and waiting for you to step on those traps, and he wants to ruin you and destroy you, but he's baited that hook with things that look good and feel good and promise to deliver something they will never actually deliver. And what I have to do when I submit to God is I'm saying, God, I'm, I'm submitting to you and I'm saying no to everything else. Now, let me be honest with you. When I think about this, when I think about what it means for me to resist Satan, here's what goes on in my head. I know how hard it is to resist me. Did y'all ever feel that? You feel that moment your heart is screaming to do something or want something, and it feels like it takes every inch, every drop of every energy that I've got to tell my heart no. 
That battle feels like I lose it too many times. Right? I, I, I know how to lose to my own self. Right? So now you throw Satan in the mix. I don't know about this, guys. I have a hard enough time telling me no and resisting me. Now what happens when Satan, who's crafty and strong and scares the mess out of me, what happens if he decides, you know who I want? I want Fayez today. You feel pretty good about your odds of standing up to that? I'm not feeling great about it. But, but here's the deal. Here's what God says. If you submit to him, and by submitting to God, that's humbling yourself, and that means that you're resisting the devil. Look at the promise at the end of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen, I, I read that, and I'm like, that's, that's a lot of grace right there. Here's what God is promising us. Now, don't get cocky about this, but his promise is this. If you will submit, humbly submit to God and resist the devil, then God says he'll pour out so much grace that when you're resisting the devil, he will run from you. It doesn't mean he'll run right away. It doesn't mean there won't be a battle of epic proportions that you feel like you don't get by within an inch of your life. But his promise is that if you'll humbly submit to God and resist the devil, then God will pour out grace and the devil will run from you. That's crazy to me. Now, now let me explain that a little bit more because I am afraid that we might get a little cocky with this. I think I've given this illustration before, but how many of you have seen the movie The Lion King? The cartoon, the real one, right? All right, if you haven't, you're, I'm going to lose you here. But if you have, stick with me. It's a classic. It's a classic Disney movie. It's awesome. There's this, there's this lion named Simba, this little baby lion comet. He wants to grow up to be king one day just like his awesome dad, right? And there's this scene where little Simba falls into a trap that his snaky uncle has set up for him where he's going to go and he's going to this elephant graveyard. Do you remember this scene? And he, he's at this elephant graveyard and all the hyenas are going to eat this little Simba so that this really dirtbag guy can become king. And as he's there, these hyenas are closing in and he's running for his life and he's not going to make it. So him and his little friend, they turn and he decides he's going to roar at these crazy hyenas. This little weak, so he, he lets out this roar and it's just this weak like, Right? Like it's like, and they're laughing like, oh, that's hilarious. Like that's, that's real big. And then all of a sudden he goes to let this roar rip. He digs in deep, lets it roar, and it's this huge, massive, gigantic roar. And the hyenas, hyenas tuck tail and run. But here's the problem. It wasn't Simba's roar. Standing behind him was the real lion, the real king that had the strength and the power. And when he showed up, when he stood behind his baby boy, and when he roared, that's when the hyenas ran. Listen, this is not a promise that you'll be terrifying to the demons. This is a promise that the king of the universe will be standing behind you to terrify the demons. I need you to understand how much grace he has for us. I don't know what you're struggling with today. You may be wrapped up in sin or addiction, or your marriage is falling apart, or everything in your life feels off. It may feel impossible to you to actually obey God. It may feel like everything is stacked against you, but this promise says if you'll humbly submit to God and resist the devil, then God will pour out so much grace and be on your side that even the devil will run because Jesus is with you. That's good news, church. 
That's good news when you're struggling. That's good news when it feels hopeless. That's good news when you failed over and over and over again. That's good news because that means that Jesus is on our side. And that's a lot of grace. So let me remind you, submission to God will resist Satan. Second, my second R, submission to God will, submission to God will reach for God. Look at what it says here in verse 8. It says, he's given these things. Uh, he says, Sub- submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That word is just really simple. And it actually requires some faith. It's saying that you want to take a step towards God. You're drawing near to him. You're approaching him. Now, that may not sound difficult to you right now. But let me put it in perspective for you. If all you've been doing this entire time is you've been going after this thing over here, this piano over here. Say God's over there and I've been pursuing this nonstop. Even though I know he died for me. I know he saved me. I'm pursuing this, and I'm going after this, and then I've got James telling me, man, you're not doing what he says. You're waffling back and forth. You're looking back and forth, and you're getting selfish. You don't care about the poor. You only care about yourself, and your words are brutal, and you're fighting, and you're pursuing this thing, this thing, this thing. There's that moment when I want to turn to him that it's a little nerve-wracking. Do you know why it's a little nerve-wracking? Because if I actually believe I've wronged him in a major way. You ever had that moment when you got in a fight with someone? I don't know, maybe I don't get in a fight with people. You got in an argument and you just were a real jerk. You know you've really wronged someone or you've said something and you're, you're busted on it. I, um, you know that first moment that you go to see that person? You know what that feels like? that shame and that fear, like how you want to avoid seeing that person that you wrong. You, you may feel that way when someone wronged you, but that moment when you're seeing someone that you know is mad at you, and maybe rightfully so, it takes a lot to take that first step towards them, doesn't it? There's a lot of fear in taking that first step. Why? Because they might still be mad, they might still be angry, they might need more time to cool off. Maybe I need to bring them some gifts to make them feel better. Like, it's, it's unresolved at this moment. It's hanging in the air between us. That first step towards them is the hardest step. That's the step that's difficult. That's saying, I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to go ask them to forgive me. That's that moment. I see it with my kids all the time whenever they've wronged their siblings. They will sit and tell me how they were wrong to their brother or sister all day long. But the moment they have to go ask their brother or sister to forgive them, that's when everything stops. That's the hard part. They don't mind telling me. When they got to stand face to face with their brother and sister and say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? That's when the wheels fall off. It's hard to say it. But but listen, I, I want you to hear what this says. It says this. It says, if you draw near to God, he will give you grace. And his grace is that he will draw near to you. He's not going to stand all the way over here and say, another step. Another step. Let me see another step. Let me see another one. Get over here. Another step. That's not the grace that he gives us. The grace that he gives us is the moment that that turns. The moment you turn and take a step towards him, he's hauling tail over to you. 
You see that picture? That's the grace that he gives. It's not one step at a time. If you turn and go to approach him, he's saying, man, if you will humble yourself in that way and submit and take a step, I'm after you. I'm there, man. It's that moment of the love of a father when their kid is coming back home. That's the story of the prodigal son, right? And sometimes we sit over here and we, we've done whatever. I mean, it could be the worst thing ever. And we're like, I can't. I can't. He'll never forgive me. It's too bad. It's too dark. I've done this too many times. And he says, if you'll humble yourself and draw near to me, he'll cover the rest of the gap. Church, that's grace. That, that's the gospel. That's exactly what God offers us when he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He sent his son while we were still going that way. He paid the full price for that full gap while we were still all the way over there. He invited when we didn't want it. And he's calling. And the moment we just say, I was wrong, forgive me, I want you, he's there, man. That's grace. Today, if you're stalling, drawing near to him, I just want to encourage you, man, draw near to him. And he will draw near to you, regardless of the past, regardless of your past. He'll draw near because of Jesus. Doesn't matter how many times you messed up, he'll draw near because of Jesus. Doesn't matter how bad it was, he'll draw near because of Jesus. That's his grace that he offers to us. I'll give you the third R. The first R was submission to God will resist Satan. The second one is submission to God will reach for God. And the third is this. Submission to God will repent of sin. Look at 8b. It says this, James chapter 4, verse 8, the second half, after he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, change your behavior, that's what hands is. Purify your heart, change your internal motivations, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What, what, what is James saying there? He's saying this. He's saying, listen, take your sin seriously. The grace of God is not flippant about sin. Grace of God doesn't minimize sin or ignore the seriousness of sin. It doesn't just pass on past it. The grace of God causes us to repent of sin. That we actually grieve it. And mourn it and say, I'm, I'm done with this. I want you. That's, that's what that whole turning thing is I di discovered, discussed earlier. Repentance is that moment you turn to him. It's the moment before you step. You're saying, I'm done with this. I don't want this. I want you. That's repentance. When you turn away from the thing that's been owning you and calling you and dominating you. And what James is saying is he's saying, listen, submission to God will cause you to repent of sin. Doesn't take it lightly. Listen, that means you're going to feel bad in this moment. Do you, do you see that? Be wretched. In other words, feel distressed, mourn, and weep. Listen, when we're submitting to God, it will cause us to grieve our sin, but it's a grief that leads to repentance. Let me read this verse to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, there's different types of grief over sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance, that's what it does, that godly grief, that, 
that washing your hands and purifying your heart, that being wretched and mourning and weeping, that godly grief, what does it do? It produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, listen, like there's, a, there's a way to grieve. There's a way to grieve sin, but what you're really grieving is that you, you got, maybe you got caught and you're grieving the consequence. You're not grieving the sin. Or there's a way to grieve that's saying, listen, I'm, I'm more determined now than ever to try to get this thing that I want. Or, or maybe you're grieved because your ego was, was hit on this one. Or your image was tarnished. Or you, you have consequences and it's keeping you from getting what you really want. That's not real repentance. That's a sorrow that you're not getting what you want. You're still trying to find a way to go after the idol in your heart. Repentance says, I don't want that anymore. I want him. It's different. I'm not just sorry because I didn't get this. I'm not sorry because I didn't get something. I'm sorry because I don't have him and I want him. That's repentance. That's the type of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It's not flippant. It's not small. It's not light. It's this moment that in your heart you feel grieved and you want Jesus. And the Bible says that if we repent of sin, then he'll give grace and he'll forgive that's exactly why Jesus came to die. Let me read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Look at what it says about Jesus. It says, in him, or in Jesus, we have redemption. That's, that's being cleaned through his blood. In him, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Listen, if, if we want more grace rich, overflowing, abounding grace. It comes not by being self-sufficient and proudful, but by humbly submitting to God in a way that resists sin and Satan, that reaches for God and that repents of sin. In verse 10, James says this. He He summarizes what God will do. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. If we do this, if we submit and resist the devil, if we submit and reach for God, if we submit and repent of sin, then he'll give us more grace, and that more grace will look a certain way. It means that he will give us, and he'll lift us up, and he'll exalt us, and he'll give us victory over sin, and he'll give us joy, and he'll make us his children. He will give you everything that you need. Church, we're going to be followers of Jesus that get more grace. And that means we're followers of Jesus who submit to him. So today the question I have for you is this. Are you being submissive to God? Are you being submissive in a way that you resist sin and yourself and Satan? Are you being submissive to God in a way that you actually reach for him and strive for him and try to take a step towards him? Are you submissive in a way that repents of sin? Listen, if we'll be those people, we'll get more grace. But if we won't, he'll resist us. Guys, there's abounding and overflowing grace available for us if we'll submit. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to take a moment. I'm going to walk us through a moment of response. 
this is a time where you get to do business with God. I, I don't want to get in the way of that. I'm going to let him work in your heart on that. But the question for you is, have you been submitting to God or not? Is there something he, he did in your heart today where you feel like, man, I'm, I feel like I've been unsubmissive this? It can be a million different things. Whatever he put on your heart, would you repent of being unsubmissive and decide to submit and he'll give you more grace? You've been resisting sin and Satan? We've been giving in and pursuing it, submitting to that instead of Jesus. Repent. You've been reaching for God. Been longing for him and trying to pursue him or have you been sitting down, walking away distracted, maybe even bored with him? So he'll give more grace if you'll repent and reach for him. Have you been flippant with sin? Because you've been flippant with sin, you haven't been repenting, then... He says, if you'll repent, he, he gives more grace. Maybe for some of you here today, you've never taken the first step of submission. And the thing has been happening to you is you've been religious or you've been good or you've been maybe curious about God, but there's never been this moment that you decided that you were going to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus as your only hope. That you would say, Jesus, your work on the cross, I know you died on the cross for me and you came back to life three days later, but I need to take a step towards you. I need to place my full confidence in what you did and not my own word. That's the first step of submission is being saved, being born again. If you've never done that, and that's the thing that God is doing in your heart right now, you feel him calling you, I want to encourage you right now to not resist him, but to submit to ask him to save you. Wherever you're at in that, he gives more grace. In a moment, I'm, I'm going to close in prayer. And if you need to speak with someone, our pastors and decision council will be down front. We'd love to talk with you. I want to say one more thing. Right there in your seat, would you just take a moment would you praise him for being rich in grace? Would you praise him for being overflowing in mercy? Heavenly Father, I'm really glad that you're rich in grace. God, we need it. We need all that grace. And so, God, I, I'm praying you would help us in those moments when it feels hard that we would be, we would humbly submit to you and whatever your word says. God, we want more grace. So, God, help us not to be resistant and proud. Help us to be humble and submissive and moldable in your hand. God, I pray we'd fight sin. God, I pray we'd run to you. God, I pray we'd We'd submit to you in everything. I pray you would work. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, church.